Hello and welcome once again to Three Moves Ahead. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, being hosted myself by regular panelist Julian Murdoch. Julian, uh, thanks for putting up with me once again. Well, uh, thanks for putting up with the sound of chainsaws out the front window. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quick preemptive apology to our producer, Michael Hermes, and to you, the listener, uh, if he can't work miracles this time. Uh, there was a wicked storm out here a week or so ago, and a lot of trees came down. So right now, Julian's got some dudes out there cutting down the remnants of a forest. So you're probably going to hear some chainsaw and workmen <laughs> out there. Uh, nothing we can do about it for now. All right. Uh, today we're going to be revisiting Frozen Synapse, which we discussed last year during its beta. We're joined by Frozen Synapse superfan Dan Stapleton, a PC gamer. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Rob, and I apologize if uh, my chainsawing up hooker bodies uh, causes any. <laughs> I, my, Michael Hermes can can remove that, right? Because that, that would be that would it's be incriminating. The, it's the screaming that's the problem. Uh, finally, Mode 7's own Paul Taylor has joined us for what promises to be a victory lap as he tells us about the turn-based squad combat game. Paul, thanks for making the time to come visit. Hey, no problem. Uh, no chainsaws here, but I'll do my best to make sort of loud cracking and grinding sounds every now and again. <laughs> Excellent. See, this is just this is just a feature-rich podcast we put out for uh, Three Moves Ahead <laughs> listeners every week. Uh, okay, so, Paul, before we get into the game itself, uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and Mode 7? What's your gaming background, and how did it lead you to making Frozen Synapse? Sure, well, uh, we started Mode 7, and by we, I mean uh, myself and my business partner and long-term friend, Ian Hardingham. We started when he was at university, um, and he'd done a bit of work experience in a local development studio. We're, we're based in Oxford in the UK. And he kind of, um, he enjoyed it, but he didn't really want to work in the mainstream industry. So he decided at that point to kind of make his own indie game. And that was sort of uh, back in around 2005. Um, and we did that. We made a sword fighting game called Determinants, which was pretty crazy and didn't do particularly well, but uh, was a really good education in the, uh, the ridiculous process of making games. Um, so from there, we just decided that we wanted to kind of take it forward and, and try and make it a proper business and make a game that we thought would, would work um, and would really kind of show people what we could do. So we started on Frozen Synapse um, sort of around about three or four years ago um, and sort of everything went from there really. So there's three of us in the actual company and we use a lot of outsourced uh, artists and other coders as well. Uh, and for myself, I do the audio music writing for the game. I also did the art direction and some of the single player design. Um, but the main bulk of the design and code is, is done by Ian. Um, so that's kind of how things break down with us and how we got started in general. So when you guys aren't, uh, when you guys aren't making games, uh, what, what do you guys tend to play? What, what were your influences as you, uh, as you worked on Frozen Synapse? Well, Frozen Synapse really came a lot out of Ian's uh, rather unhealthy obsession with Late Squad Nemesis. So that was sort of the, the main influence for it. And, and basically, um, FS kind of came out of wanting to take that game and simplify it, sort of distill down some uh, specific elements of that. Um, in terms of what we're playing at the moment, uh, I'm just playing loads and loads of StarCraft. Um, I, I've kind <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> I haven't really got that much into a game um, for, for ages, really, so it's kind of nice to have something that's actually hooked me. Um, so yeah, I'm Silver League and proud now, <laughs> and uh, trying, to, uh, trying to improve my StarCraft skills. So, um, so that's that. Yeah, that's kind of interesting you say that because because uh, Frozen Synapse to me is a lot like Laser Squad Nemesis minus Starcraft because you, you don't you don't get the the asymmetry of the of the sides so it's yeah. it's more of a, a a you know purely distilled more more of a chess like experience than 
than the uh, the asymmetrical uh, warfare of Laser Squad Nemesis. I, I, the, the the analogy to chess is one that I keep coming back to. Uh, really, from a modern perspective, I mean, my, most of my experiences playing chess now happen asynchronously through something like chess.com. Um, occasionally, I'll get a, a game where I'm playing live against an opponent, but usually it's still intermediated by the computer. It's very rare I actually get to sit down and play a game of chess. When most of my friends come over to play board games, we play something big and grognardy and more complicated. This has been incredibly satisfying because it scratches all of those same itches that being in a chess league or something like that does online, um, but with so much more variety. Uh, and, you know, I mean, Rob and I have been playing most of the afternoon um, just sort of <clears throat> on the opposite side of a door so that we could hear each other's <laughs> screams when one of us did something <laughs> awesome, and uh, which was usually Rob, not me, doing the screaming because he, he did something awesome. Uh, and And it was a totally different experience than the the sort of more uh, intermediated version which is more like a play by mail game but but again just like when you're playing chess with somebody with a fast clock in their face it becomes much more uh you know emotional much more competitive because you're right there and you can hear the person's you know you can hear the person's sadness as their last shotgun or gets blown away well you yeah, can just... practically taste their tears <laughs> exactly and they, and they are sweet indeed uh, yeah, just before we recorded the show, actually, um, you know, there's the, the there's this ma- there's this point in every match, I think, where a lot of a lot of the kills already happened. So now it's just the last couple characters sort of hunting each other down in the map, and that's when the the pace of the game really picked up. Like Julie and I were just firing turns back and forth because we both knew like this was it. Like it was you know there was no more there wasn't much left to plan. It was just make your best guess about where the guy was going to be and resolve the turn, and then. He his computer's a little faster, so I was able to hear him. I I, I heard him like wail from the next <laughs> room, like oh no! And then you know, on my on my feet, I see my shotgunner like kill his last dude, and uh, that was you know it was a really memorable match and a great way to finish it. It was it's the first time I played Frozen Synapse like you know head to head where I can actually see my opponent. And man, mm. it makes a good game even richer. It does. It does. It makes it like playing a great, very short tactical board game face to face with somebody. So, um, one question, uh, you know, my girlfriend actually brought this up before the show. Why is it called Frozen Synapse? Um, it's kind of a, a play on the, the sort of atemporal nature of it. So it's as if your, your brain is kind of put into stasis for a while. Um, and it kind of also came out of the, the single player, you know, the, the character, the main character or the, the player's character in the single player is, uh, completely atemporal. So basically it was kind of just a massively pretentious way of re- representing that idea. Uh, and also, it sounds cool, and and people always ask me what it means, and I think that's a good thing for a name, really. Uh, I didn't want sure. it to be sort of called, you know, Squad Death Twenty Five, <laughs> Little Green Men Die, you know, that that kind of thing's a bit. Squad, squad so. Death Twenty Five doesn't sound bad, actually. <laughs> I know, I know. It sounds a little bit like Laser Squad Nemesis. It does. It does. Yeah, right. Uh, right. I'm writing that down. Well, the thing that Laser Laser Squad Nemesis is kind of an outrageous name uh, if you think about it for too long. Oh, it's incredibly so, uh, cheesy. We, yeah, we didn't we didn't want to go down that route and. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think some people, um, we had a review in a French magazine and, and half of the review was spent saying how terrible the name was. And the other <laughs> half was spent saying that it was quite a good game, actually, and this awful name had tarnished it beyond all belief. So um, so I think it Boston worked. translation. Yeah, uh, it's, it's the yeah. French, right? Can't we say something disparaging about the French and just write that off? And I have to admit myself a Francophile here, so I'll, I'll just be like, well, if the French don't like it, it must be a terrible name then, because uh, they would know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
so one thing I want one thing I wanted to raise though, um, you know, to go back to the chess analogy here, like I mean, what what makes one of the things that makes chess chess is this is the sense of like perfect balance. And here, one of the charms of Frozen Synapse is every like there's so much that is random. I would say, I mean, the 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 maps are. I'm not clear. Are the are the maps randomized, or is there a large set of maps that the that the game is randomly selecting from? Uh, both. So it's basically continually generating random maps. The server is, and the server might serve the same map to different people, and hence you get the duplicate system, whereby you know you can play a match, and then once it's completed, you can watch how other players have played in your position on that map. So it, it yeah, it's sort of the best of both worlds, really. Right, so I mean, there 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 have been a couple situations I think where it, it kind of seemed like just the way the map was drawn and then the unit selection each side was given for that map kind of predetermined the outcome. There was one match uh, that Julian and I played just before you know just before we recorded, where uh, there was a ma- there was a long central like corridor through the map, and I was the only guy with a mm. sniper, and that kind of you know from from the word go like there was he had a very difficult time. Yeah, ever having hope, and that was one of those situations where, it, you know, the moment the moment the map loaded and we saw what we had, and we saw where we were starting. It kind of looked like we we knew we knew exactly how this was going to play out, and and we did. I, I'm I'm curious how um, you know how how have been handling balance issues that this randomness creates, and how have players reacted to it. Well, one of the main ideas with with FS that Ian had when he was kind of conceptualizing it was to take stuff from board games, uh, sorry, card games, particularly bridge. And the idea, you know, being that sometimes you just get a crappy hand. And the fun is in trying to, you know, you and your opponent can both see who has the stronger hand. And then if you manage to win in that situation, it just, it's sort of, you know, double the awesomeness. Um, right. So that was that was kind of the idea there. In terms of balancing, um, it was just through a uh, you know the really really stereotypical answer of just lots of lots of playtesting, and it's particularly with Unix. Um, we had a, for a really long time uh, there was the sentiment that the sniper was incredibly underpowered, and we kind of we did tweak it very slightly, but we sort of stuck to our guns on that one. And as things have turned out. Um, now, as the game is developing a little bit, the sniper is is being quite a good, you know, utility unit and kind of fulfilling its role. So, I mean, we're really having to learn kind of game balancing for for a multiplayer game. That's why we spent so long in, in beta as well, um, was to try and just nail down all those issues. But and it's also one of the reasons why the games has ver- has uh, very few units. We wanted to create something that's kind of tight and really, really nicely balanced. Without, you know, and, uh, and as soon as you start elaborating on the central theme and you add loads and loads of units, uh, it becomes immensely difficult to balance. And one of the challenges in describing frozen synapse or synapse, I guess we'll start pronouncing it your way, um, <laughs> to, to people is it, it's almost as much a game about what's not there as what is, right? I mean, it plays very quickly. Uh, it's not unusual for a game to be resolved on turn three if something went horribly wrong. Uh, you know, a big, long, drag-out game might hit 20 turns, uh, but I'm, I'm not sure I've ever actually gotten to 20 turns on anything. I mean, 15 is a big, epic, well-balanced struggle yeah. unless somebody just turtles up and, you know, is intentionally being annoying. Um, and you're dealing with, you know, a handful of unit types and only a handful of individual units. The distinction between those types is very straightforward. So again, it comes back to this chess analogy where you're dealing with an extraordinarily simplified set of tools, um, you know, a very small map area, 
Um, there are a bunch of different game modes, but they're fairly straightforward as well. They're not there's there's not a tremendous strategic depth in the game modes themselves, and yet um, the level of tactical situations that evolve are really intense. I mean, I you know you you really are rewarded for thinking about cover and firing lanes and unit speed and aim and I mean you, yeah. you really get some great strategic satisfaction out of these very scanty tools. Well, the idea, again, it was kind of to sort of go, what's the interesting bit of all these strategy games? And, you know, for us, the, at that time when we were thinking about it, the interesting bit was when you've already got all your units into position, and then you're trying to either force your opponent to do something, or make them think you're going to do something, or just simply kind of structure an attack um, tactically and, and, and sort of geometrically. Because with a, with a lot of those games, really, really great games, um, like XCOM, for example, just to, to go back even further, you spend so much of the map, match or level just positioning your dudes in, in the right place so that interesting action can happen. It was just the idea of what happens if you just get rid of that setup phase, and is that enough of a game in its own right? Yeah, I, hadn't, I, hadn't, I had not really thought of it that way, but it is definitely like... You know, the the moment the game begins, you're already dropped into the the hottest action of a of a good squad right. combat. And game. and you can lose in turn one. I mean, if you if especially in a game where you know it, it randomly spawns you with you know two rocketeers and two grenadiers on each side, that game turn one can lose you that game. You know, but yeah. th- there's something I wanted to wanted to raise with you, Dan, because as I'm playing, we keep referring to we keep referring to you know squad squad combat classics like XCOM and Laser Squad Nemesis. But when I play it, the, the mental gymnastics I find myself doing uh, are, are much closer to, say, the way I tend to play like squad shooters. Uh, the you know the way the way you tend to navigate, um, you know, multi- multiplayer maps where you're trying to anticipate, you know, when is this guy going to be coming through the door? You lost you lost sight of somebody as he was moving through the level, you know, a minute ago. Now you need to pause and you need to try to figure out where he's going to reappear. And so there's a lot of this anticipation, a lot of thinking about how these characters are moving through space. Like, are they crouched? Are they standing? Where is their gun aimed? And, I, and I, at least for me, yes, it is, it is a squad tactical game. But the way I'm relating to it is actually much closer to the way I relate to a shooter. Well, I mean, for, for me, it is, it is 100% getting in the other guy's head and figuring out, you know, not only how is he thinking, but how does he think I'm thinking? Um, and I, I find I do exceptionally well at this game when I make use of the, the feature that allows me to plot out orders for the other guy and then you know, do, do that first. So what would I do in this situation? And then uh, plot out my orders to directly counteract that. So, I mean, like, I, I'm not a, a great uh, shooter player, so, and maybe maybe this is why I don't think of shooters like that. I'm much more of a kind of shoot-from-the-hip kind of guy when I... When, when I don't have time to think things out, um, in this in this case, it's much more just specifically plotting what he's going to do and trying to trying to counteract what he's going to do. You, you just totally blew my mind. I've never actually. I mean, I know I know you could, but I've never actually clicked on my opponent's guys and said, "Well, what if he moves over here?" Uh, and then played out the turn ahead of time. I mean, in retrospect, obviously, that's the way you should do it, just like if you're trying to think three moves ahead in a chess game, right? Or in a podcast. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I highly recommend that. I mean, I, 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 it blows my mind when, when I do that, and then the guy does exactly what I thought he was going to do. <laughs> yeah. it, it, is, it, it makes me feel like, like a mind reader. It's fantastic. 
Um, yeah, I, one of the best games of FS I've ever played um, was against kind of one of our long-term community, and I, I was, um, I really, really badly wanted to beat him at that point for a, for a specific reason. Anyway, uh, I, uh, I sort of decided to um, to do exactly what you say, map out what I thought he was going to do, and then I was looking at these these plans I'd made, and then thinking, but I know he's going to try and be annoying, so he's going to deliberately do the most annoying thing that isn't conventional. So I do the conventional plan first, and then I'd remake it with ad annoyingness and on two turns I completely 100% predicted his mood I was so happy um, so it does it does have that feature I mean we kind of put the planning in just as a way to sort of sketch out what your opponent's going to do and sort of make sure that your turn is going to work and what we've seen with really high level players is that they are doing exactly that they're really really trying to properly get inside their opponent's head and uh, and map out sort of exactly what would be the optimal thing for their opponent's unit to do and then try and counter that um, you'll see really good players sort of setting up kind of like a prevent type strategy on certain turns where they know that their opponent could do a strong turn and they just they play really defensively on that one turn and then go really aggressive the next turn. So, uh, the, yeah, the metagame of signups is getting quite complicated and uh, people are taking quite a long time to do their turns as well on some matches. And it's it's great just that this this uh, play by email is effectively play by email setup allows mm-hmm. you to to do that and you know you, you you don't feel the pressure okay you've got to make this move right now I can I can take a day to plan out my turn you know that that might be a bit excessive yeah. but I you know I, I'm in no hurry I can I can plot out all of the possibilities and plan for every contingency if I if I really want to uh, to to win that game. Um, one thing we're actually looking at at the moment um, for the future is doing a mode that allows turn time limit. Um, it's something that people keep asking us for. You know, again, again, the chess analogy is, is sort of very pertinent there. Um, it's something that we chose to avoid uh, initially because we wanted this thing of that people didn't feel under pressure to do things. Um, FS was supposed to be kind of a relaxing game, and it ended up being quite tense and. Uh, so we didn't want to add in anything that increased what, that sort of. What, what part of it is relaxing? I mean, well, the, it was the, yeah. I, I know this seems. I know this seems slightly odd now, all things considered. But the idea, sort of, originally was that it was a game that could be played like while you were doing something else. So you could be watching TV, and then sort of a turn would come in, and you could do your turn, and then kind of carry on. And the the sort of complexity uh, that the game ended up having means that people do actually tend to play it kind of in a synchronized way, like they're sitting there waiting for the other guy's turn to come in and they're, they're plotting stuff out. So it sort of ended up a little bit different from that. But um, but that was the original intention. Yeah, well, right. You can play it like that, you'll just lose. Yeah, um, well, that, that's the whole reason behind if you implemented a chess clock system, that, that would be a very different game, right? I mean, a five-minute yeah, exactly. speed chess version of Frozen Synapse would be very different experience. Exactly. Right, I think people do yeah, underestimate sorry. how much that would completely change the nature of the game, the feel of the game. But um, it's certainly something we'd like to do for kind of a special mode, like at least um, you know allow you to specify some kind of some kind of time limit. Yeah, it, it it would take away all of the all of the or not all of the ability, but a lot of the ability to to plot out all the, all the multiple contingencies and would would really you know kind of hone you know, bring out the the need to to uh, really play you know go with a gut feeling and just. You know, pick your your best shot and then go with that instead of trying out multiple things. Which is yeah. honestly kind of the way I prefer to play it because the the problem is there's so there's so much you can do in your turn. There's so much if you really want to plan your turn down to the smallest detail. Oh yeah, walk, ten, walk two steps, pause for half a second, and, change your line of sight. Yeah, I mean it's just yeah. I mean it can it can definitely it can get definitely get that intense. And I, and I consciously try to avoid that level of involvement because. 
right now I enjoy the game even though I lose a lot, but I think if I take it to that next level involvement, like there's going to be a lot of rage when like these <laughs> intricately planned maneuvers like just no. completely crumble in like a sniper's gun sight. So I'm not I'm not ready to play at that level, but I do think it's interesting that you sort of intended this to be a open on your desktop maybe while you're working on mm. other stuff, uh strategy game because it's an interesting case where you know, it it is asynchronous. You can you can turn you file your turns at separate times, and you don't have to be waiting on your opponent's next turn. But yeah. I think there's so much suspense built into the design that mm. it just it completely it completely absorbs you. It's it's a game that you don't want to look away from, even though you know watching it like a hawk won't make it. it you know, it's a watched pot, not boiling, right? Like watching it like a hawk won't make it won't change the outcome one bit. But yeah. you were just so invested by the time you're waiting, you know, you just, you have to see how this next turn goes. And while you're waiting for the next turn to come, you watch your, your plotted turn over and over thinking, <laughs> is this going to work? Is this really going to work? Mm. I might be screwed. Well, I, I just start, you know, two or three games at once and, you know, and use those, those other games to fill the time yep. of when I, when I'm not waiting for the other guy to move. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of those things that, you know, I've got a dozen, you know, much more long-term games going on at any given time where we might be doing one or two moves a day. And and I love that kind of experience. Um, and the thing that makes this more rewarding for me than, than say, chess, uh, which, which also lends itself to those sort of things, is that you're actually, even if you're only doing a turn a day, you're still done in a week for the most part, um, you know, or if you're doing two turns a day. Uh, and and that's just not the case with chess, right? With chess, there's a long build-up period before you sort of get to the engagement. I think another thing, another thing with chess. I mean, people do compare FS to chess quite a lot, but with chess, there's so much based around pattern memorization. Um, and in signups, you can't really win by knowing, like, oh, we're in this situation, and in 1979, two Russian guys would, were in that exact <laughs> same situation, and and therefore, I know, you know, that sort of chess becomes more of a of a sort of memory slash um sort of logic application type thing whereas fs is much more much more reactive i mean as you play more you do learn you know there are some standard type of things to do in different situations but it's much more about kind of um at high level it seems to be about forcing your opponent into into bad situations which is uh which is kind of a dueling thing i mean one one game that ian was really really into um way back was Tribes 2 and the thing he liked most about that was um, the fact that if you had two players who were really skilled at the at the movement and um, at using one particular weapon you'd get these really epic duels that would go on sort of for ages with two players kind of pitting their skill against each other yeah. in a forced position um, and so that was actually that always plays into kind of everything he, uh, he designed um, it has some kind of if very distant Tribes 2 influence one one thing that I want to know is, with you guys, were you playing in uh, in dark mode or light? Uh, I think we were playing light. Uh, so we, were, it, we were actually mixing it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 that's with fog of war enabled or disabled. The the, uh, the difference there. I, I I find that pretty much the the only way I I play generally is is in dark mode, just because I I love the I love being able to sneak up on people. Whereas in in light mode. You know, it, it definitely has the, and, you know, to compare it to chess again, you can see everything the other guy is doing, and it's just a matter of what is he going to do with those pieces. Whereas in dark mode, it's there, there's, you know, a definite advantage to be had to actually hiding your, your soldiers and keeping them out of, out of the line of sight 
so that you keep the element of surprise. Well, and it, it really rewards fainting as well. I mean, you know, one of the great parts about doing it with the fog of war is that, um, you know, it leaves traces on the board of, you know, last seen here at, you know, four seconds ago or something like that. And so you can kind of psych out your opponent by, say, ducking into line of sight and out, quit, you know, deliberately knowing you're going the other way. And you've left this sort of ghost on the board all the time for him to think, oh, I, he was at that doorway one turn ago. And then, you know, it's so satisfying when you then do manage to sneak around behind somebody. Yeah, my my, my one, I don't know. I mean, I, I enjoyed both. My, my frustration a bit with Dark was that it could sometimes, it, it was sort of unclear to me exactly what had happened. Uh, like, you know, I'd have, I would have troopers just getting cut down and I, I had no idea, I had no idea, you know, why it was happening. Like, where were the shots coming from? So it took away some of the, I don't know, it, it actually made, you know, it was a little more realistic, I suppose. But the abruptness of it kind of cut away some of the suspense and satisfaction of seeing the two plans sort of go into action against each other. Uh, as I was sort of able to read my opponent's intentions through through his move. So, you know, I actually, I, I think I kind of prefer, I kind of prefer playing it light. But, you know, I mean, it's, they're, they're both, I mean, it's basically, I, I would say they're basically different games at that point. Yeah. You know, one, one is, one is much more chess-like and much, one is much more, uh, one is much more wargaming, I suppose, when you, when you kick in the fog war. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's it's kind of interesting for me to to hear you guys talking about that because um, if I'm remembering this rightly, uh, the game was just light for a really really long time, sort of when we were prototyping it, and fog of war was actually or, or the you know the line of sight based thing was was actually something that um, really came out more out of the testers wanting that than than that being in the original design because as you say with light it's much more about you know you know the exact state of the of the game at, at any one time and um uh, and you can sort of try and work on, on your opponent more but but dark was just really fun when we put that sort of in and then you know uh, took it out and reintroduced it later dark has the, the more random there's a little bit more luck there's there's some interesting metagame stuff in dark like if you have rocket launchers and you show you know you, you fire rockets in the first turn um, you, you give away the position of the rocket launchers, um, whereas it can be a really good idea to sort of hide them for a couple of turns and then surprise them because they're so, they're so powerful relative to the terrain. So Dark, it, it is kind of like a different game, and we, we just weren't sure if it was the right direction, but ultimately we ended up liking them both um, ourselves and, and sort of refining both of them. Um, so we just wanted to have everything really... Sorry, uh, do, do you guys uh, have numbers on, um, on which one's played more frequently? Uh, I'd say probably dark, uh, dark extermination is the most frequently played thing. I mean, par- partially because it's kind of it's kind of set to a default, and there are some things that that cluster around like whether or not people select certain modes initially. So all the stats are a bit broken for for those things. But um, but I think dark is probably more popular overall. I'd say. Dan, I was going to ask what whether you're most often playing extermination or whether you're playing some of the other game modes. I mean, I I, I will admit that dark extermination would probably be my favorite way to play it um although it's probably what i'm worst at um <laughs> i really like secure myself yeah i primarily played uh, dark extermination just because it's the default mode um i you know i, I generally just throw out a, a match request and you know see, see whoever uh, bites or you know I'll grab somebody else's game um so you know, I, I haven't like sent out a whole bunch of specific challenges because I, I like going up against opponents where i don't have a whole lot of familiarity with them and don't have don't like fall into patterns so uh you know i I get the occasional game of charge which i really enjoy um 
the the where you bid on how far down the the the, the field you're going to get before and and before you get killed um and stay there for 3 seconds um i i really enjoyed that cuz it cuz it's it's not just about you know you you can lose all but one of your guys and still win you know that's 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 a a, a huge uh you know shift in the priorities which i really enjoy um secure is 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 fun but i it it, it seems to be a little bit too much um you know, defensey to me, and and the, the, I feel like there's there's already such a strong advantage for um, for defenders in this game that yeah. it's it's a little bit too much there for me. I, I still enjoy it, but it's not not really my my cup of tea. Well, sort I think of. For me, um, sorry, sorry, I was just going to say, um, secure personally for me. I think it's the game mode that that I feel doesn't necessarily work as well as the others. I mean, there's definitely some attraction to it, but. There are some ways in which um, people can play it in quite this, in this really irritating way where they bid a massive area, um, and we haven't really addressed that one yet. So I think I think secure. You know, if I could persuade Ian to tweak that one a bit, that that might be worth tweaking. But but equally, you know, it's it's sort of it's good to have modes that are a bit wackier in there. I think, um, especially as the main modes are kind of fairly intense. Um, can get a bit serious. Like I think Charge is really a really fun and slightly lighter game mode that's sort of a little bit silly, a little bit more comedic. Um, For listeners who haven't played the game, uh, with Secure, you start out with your with your standard sort of combat arena, uh, but e- each player has to bid on. Um, so like the the map is sort of gridded up, and each each player has to sort of highlight squares that he's going contiguous squares he's going to defend. It's a bit like you know setting a king of the hill zone. Uh, in a shooter, um, and the player who bids the largest amount, the theoretically the hardest to defend patch of map, is designated the defender, and that's that's the territory you have to defend. And the other person who bid a smaller you know segment uh, finds himself on the attack. You know, I don't know. I I I think it it, it taps into you know my my war gamer side, I suppose, where See, the, the, I, the the bidding mechanic I love, right? I mean, I love yeah. that idea of bidding for for positioning in any in any strategic strategic game of any kind whether it's a board game or anything it's really rare in video games to get any kind of mechanic like that i mean you don't see people bidding on uh you know doing doing bids for units to start their starcraft games right i mean but it's very common to do that kind of thing in board games and card games i mean are there any other sort of mechanics that that you think might play into this i mean things to to my mind i'm thinking of things like drafting right i mean creating a way to do unit selection that wasn't randomized uh that sort of gave you you know point values to bid against certain types of units or something those are the kinds of things i love in strategy games uh yeah i mean i think the idea of bidding again was, was sort of um, a bridge type thing it was one of the strongest uh, bridge influences in the game i mean i think we're really interested in 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 general just hijacking mechanics from other stuff that kind of that raise the stakes competitively between two players and bidding is a really good aggressive way to do that you know i think we're we're really into the the sort of the way you can push another person around in a game and sort of see how they react um and, and a game as being a, a sort of mechanism for doing that so i think um i think in the future you might see some more sort of similar uh board gaming slash competitive mechanics in our games so one thing I, i'm really curious about is so are you able to get a lot of data about the games that your players are having among themselves? Like, are you sort of able to see 
you know what goes in each match, what the outcome is. Are you able to? Are you able? To, are you able to sort of see how your game is working out there in the wild? We can do. Um, every game obviously is is stored um, on. Originally, it was on the central server, and now it's on our on our sharded servers. Um, so we have the data from every single game. So if you want to kind of do analysis on a particular thing, all the data is there. I have to say that um, we're not particularly data driven in the way that we do design. We're much more kind of iteration intuitive, um, you know, based as, as a company, uh, just because that's that's sort of the way we want, we want to work. So we don't have stats like you know how many in encounters between snipers and shotgunners, how many snipers win. We don't have that those stats. I mean, we have sort of more generic stuff like um, usage time for uh, for users and sort of you know when they stop playing, when they come back to playing, that kind of thing, because you need that um, in general. But um, in terms of like really kind of micro data about games, we haven't done that yet, and I'd be interested, if, you know, if we get some time to do some more analysis. I mean, firstly, the thing I want to do is go and watch a lot of uh, different skill level games and, and sort of really get a feel for how people are playing a bit more. Um, but I have to say, we're kind of just uh, really caught up with with what's happening now. We don't have a lot of time to kind of go through all the all the data and analyze it uh, right now. Uh, if, if I can digress to kind of the the, uh, the business side of things, uh, and going back to Laser Squad Nemesis, I think that the reason that that game wasn't like wildly successful, or a big reason, was the subscription fee that it, they charged. It was like fifteen bucks for like three months or something like that. But yeah. you know, like for for especially for the time, subscriptions weren't standard for for MMOs even, um, or there were very few MMOs, um, and people were really resistant to playing it. I would try and get friends into it, and they're like, oh, it has a subscription? I don't want to do that. Um, but uh, I guess Julian Gallup, who, who was, uh, was running Kodo Games at the time, uh, was saying that he had to, he had to charge that to, to keep up the servers, and that's eventually why the servers, uh, that's why the servers are no longer running today. Um, I'm just wondering, like, you are not charging a subscription fee, uh, and not only that, you're, you're giving away an extra copy of a game for, that you can give to a friend. Um, yeah, I mean, do, are you? How do you keep the servers up and running? Um, well, uh, at the moment, the the server cost is absolutely fine. Uh, we don't need massively powerful servers uh, to to run the game server. It's not an incredibly demanding thing. Um, we're working on a way. Uh, recently, uh, when when the game came out, we had a massive um, sort of uh, unexpected surge of users. So we had to shard the server. And the original idea was to keep everything on one server. What we've done recently in the last few weeks is work on a, on a way of beefing up the server. Um, yeah, and there's a blog post that Ian did, you can read about this, um, where uh, basically we're going to be returning everything to the one central server. And that means that the server costs, uh, you know, with the, the revenue that we're generating right now, like it's, it's not going to be a problem for us. I mean, I think um, it's interesting that you, you bring up the, the business side of LSN because that was something that we that we did look at and we did talk about doing subscription. I mean, we, t we talked about every kind of possible payment model for this game that existed. And then we saw that people are able to do well with indie games sort of around this price point. And we, we thought, you know, if we manage to make just an indie game that people like, um, we can we can do okay at this price point and, and sort of the server side of things will take care of itself. Um, and that's, that's turned out to be the case. Giving away a free copy of the game was uh, something that we really wanted to do just to make sure that you know, it's a game that being played against someone you know is a thousand times better. And we wanted everyone to have that experience. And um, we, we looked at it really carefully for a few months. And um, it just, I just really strongly believe that indie games never reach anything like their potential audience. So to me, giving away a free key with every copy is like, it's absolutely fine. Those aren't lost sales to me. That's just broadening out the community. I think the pool of potential sales is sort of way larger than anything we're ever going to hit, really. 
I think it's a brilliant idea, and it's gotten you all kinds of goodwill, too. Yeah, I mean, we do charge a little bit more for, for our game than other indie games. I'm not afraid to say that. And it's certainly, um, people do feel that the game is really good value for money, not least because, you know, you get two copies of it when you buy it. Um, and you can, you know, you can club together with a friend if you, if you do feel the price is a bit high for you. Um, so it's, it's definitely helped with, um, with that aspect of things. And we just want people to enjoy the game. We, re we really are kind of honestly um, just trying to spread the game as, as wide as possible. Um, and we didn't want to do a kind of free-to-play model because I think a lot of the things you have to do design-wise for that kind of game can be a bit abusive and anti-player. Um, and it's really, really hard to get that right. So we wanted it to be clear, you know, you get this big load of content when you buy the game. You pay once. Um, and then from then on, it's like you're free to enjoy the game. Um, I, I actually haven't even explored this, but can you play a multiplayer game that's not intermediated by your servers? And I mean, is there a is there a sort of equivalent of a Civ Five kind of pit boss mode where uh, you know you're acting as your own servers for turn resolution? Because I, I can see you know you know you mentioned Laser Squad Nemesis that you know people are, aren't happy when servers get shut down, right? And and you know no game lasts forever in its multiplayer environment. Is this something that players can do on their own? I just don't even know if it's in the game. Um no, you can't currently do that. Uh, we're unbelievably committed to keeping the server. As long as Mode 7 is solvent, there will be a frozen sign-up server. Um, we really think it's, it's wrong for companies to shut down servers of older games. We said that publicly before. We think that's, that's just actually um, a really terrible thing to do to your customers. If it got to the point where we couldn't sustain the servers, we've said this before, we'll make the server open source. So okay. the, game will, the game will always be playable. Very, very, very important to us. Uh, when, going back to the business discussion, I, I think it's really interesting that I think what are you charge? What were you charging for the game during beta, and what are you charging now? Is it twenty for two copies? Uh, it was. It's twenty six in in the beta, and it's now twenty five. Okay, so I mean, I don't know if you have any any data on this, but I would be, I, I would be really interested to see whether or not having that extra copy and being able to send it over to one of your friends so that you know you're going to have somebody in that community to play with. I'd be curious to see whether that was, whether that led to like whether that led to stronger sales, where that became sort of a a marginal benefit that pushed people over from considering the game to actually purchasing it. Because I, you know, I can see with a lot of multiplayer games, there's this hesitation for people to sort of dip their toes into a community. That you know, it, no matter yeah. how strong the reviews, there's always this suspicion. I think of the internet, and I'd be interested to see sort of the sort of the effect that being able to give the game to one of your friends had on people's yeah. purchasing decisions. I would, I would love to be able to isolate that. And unfortunately, the only way you could do that is to go back in time and not do it. Uh, so we can't really, <laughs> <laughs> as nice as that would be, uh, I'd love to do that. Um, it's what you just said, uh, the, the sort of you know, trepidation people have about jumping into a big complex uh, MP games. The reason we decided to have a big single-player campaign um, so that there, you know, if you don't want to play multiplayer straight away, there's a way of learning the game and there's a way of, you know, experiencing a lot of the things that are good about the game without having that worry. Um, and we were really strong in that from day one. Like we really wanted to have a single player that, that people could kind of get into. Um, in terms of the free key thing, uh, around sort of probably just over 50% of people actually use their free key. So those really? copies are getting out there, and um, it, it you know it really has made a difference to the to the size of the community. But in terms of like how that's actually directly affected revenue, um, 
it would be difficult to know. I mean, I, we, I think if, if we'd had massively lower sales than we'd expected, uh, and yet the game was still popular, then we would, uh, we would know we had the problem, and that definitely hasn't been the case. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident that it's quote-unquote worked uh, in this instance. Well, based on the the, uh, the server load at launch, I guess you you were taken a bit by surprise by how well it did. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd say that I mean we we had fairly high expectations just because we had um, such a great response to the beta, and we had some really lovely um, press all the way through the beta, and and the, the pre-orders actually did kind of quite well. So we were expecting quite a lot of people, and, and we had. Yeah, it went over what we were what we were sensibly expecting at that point. So, um, so that was great, but it was also probably the hardest period of work I've had to do in my life um, during that time. Uh, was really insanely stressful, but um, obviously, obviously cool. And um, things have settled down a bit now, which is nice. Uh, yeah, there, so there, there got, were a couple of days where it, where it was a little bit rocky trying to trying to play a game, but uh, but it's 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 very uh, very easy now. That's right. I mean, we we did have we did have a couple of bad days, um, and you know we we sort of said sorry for that. Basically, it was just down to us kind of not having the right system in place. But we did have some emergency stuff ready to go, and that that sort of worked. And I think overall, um, I'd say that people are generally happy with like the amount of server uptime and the way that we've managed to keep the game going. Um, through that difficult period and um, we certainly made a lot of improvements to the individual servers like if you play now the game is faster you don't have those really annoying times to log in etc so um, trying to make the, the experience of playing online like smooth and, and as it's intended to be was was a big load of work that we did post-launch and uh, that's still not quite finished but it should be finished in the next few weeks well, not, not, to, not to add more work to your load but uh, but there's, <laughs> there's one thing I, I really want to push for and that's the ability to, to send somebody who is not online a message because yeah. A lot of times when when I've I've you know just been just been schooled or have just schooled someone and I just want to send them either you know smack congratulations talk. or condolences <laughs> or yeah. smack talk and uh, and like there's no way to to, to do that. Certainly, uh, like chat and player communication is sort of one of the weaker sides of like the the community features. I mean, we do have like we have the in-game chat and we have the IRC um, systems at the moment. But yeah, like you say, it's when you, when someone goes out of a game, um, you lose them and you can't communicate with them that easily, and it's, it's sort of a little bit of a mess. Um, so that's that's really high on our list of like new features. When we get to the point where we're actually adding features, um, that's something that we really want to look at and see if we can just improve that communication side of things. Going back to the uh, to the beta, I know it was a it was a lengthy beta process. I mean, the Frozen Synapse is one of those games where I was sort of surprised to be hearing about it again, uh, starting <laughs> like a month ago. So much of it last year, exactly. Yeah. And it it was a very it was a very long it was a very long beta, and I know a lot of press were involved in it. Uh, I'd be I'd be curious to hear you discuss the uh, sort of the the process you went through with the beta, uh, what its benefits were, what you know what the difficulties of doing that sort of long process were, and. You know, I'm, I, what, what really interests me is this seems to be a direction that a lot of a lot of studios, particularly independent studios, are going with. You know, soft launches where a very you know almost open beta at a certain point yeah. before you ever formally or, say this is the release beta. version. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, I mean, could you could you just get into that a bit? Sure. Um, so, what happened with it was we basically kind of had a the core of the multiplayer was finished. So we had this game that we knew was working and we started showing it to people and, and they really liked it. So we thought, okay, now we have a, a game that's reasonably 
you know, a multiplayer only game that's, that's fairly fully featured, um, that works well and that looks, you know, pretty good. So we thought that's the right time to put it out there and start charging for it because we wanted people to, you know, we felt that that game was worth the price we were charging for it then. So we thought, you know, this is a good thing to release and, and it was pretty stable as well. Like we, we, we didn't leave any kind of horrible things in, in that beta when we, when we released it. So we started off with that. Um, and I think the two major things that we had to do during the beta were really the UI, um, the UI and the menus, and uh, number two, the single player campaign. So with the UI, we'd spent quite a lot of time um, iterating on that already, but there were some really, really glaring problems with it. Um, there were some issues about things being really hard to select, it being too fiddly, um, the aiming system wasn't very good, moving orders around on plans was really terrible. Um, it was really difficult to edit plans once they were in place. Yes. So we started, <laughs> uh, yeah, we started working on those things, and, and that was a really hard process. I mean, uh, we'd made some mistakes with how it was designed, so there were some things that we just couldn't fix. For example, things like the aim handle and time handle being hard to select. We didn't have code that allowed those to scale properly with, um, with zooming in and out. There was some particular way that we'd done that the moment we couldn't do that. So there are still some problems with the UI that was sort of just unfixable. But that took a really long time. Um, and then we moved on to kind of making the game look a lot more presentable. And um, we started working with, uh, with a different artist at that point, And he was able to kind of give the, the menus and the whole UI like a bit of an overhaul and, you know, just take it up to the level which was acceptable. Because our old kind of blue sort of slightly MS Painty menus, uh, I don't know if you remember those, uh, they, they were just pretty terrible. Um, and then finally, single player. We knew we had to do this big campaign and we had a single player AI that was working. Uh, and the design process for that was basically just based around making um, a long chain of missions that were that were all different, um, that introduced a new thing every time. We we wanted to do that kind of. Uh, I read an interview with the Cannon Fodder um, devs about about their appro approach to single player, and one of the things was you know you show the player something new in each level, so they want to play the level, and we thought wow that's kind of a high benchmark, so we'll try and do that. Um, and that we spent a really long time trying out different structures for single player. We had this idea originally, like if you failed a mission, you'd go down to this kind of weird, randomly generated sort of lost track. Like your character would get demoted, and you'd have to do terrible random missions forever until you uh, until you finally won one. Then you get back in the campaign. Really stupid ideas like that. Um, <laughs> we, we, you know, just completely. You, you start trying to reinvent the wheel, and we just went, no, let's just just do a linear campaign that's good. And that will be fine. Um, and yeah, getting the balance of like random generation in the levels versus scripted stuff. Um, it just, yeah, so single player was this huge, huge, huge task that we just hadn't approached at all before the beta. Um, and then finally, some, some server stuff, some just getting stuff ready for launch. And uh, we're quite slow. So all of that took us about a year um, to get done. Uh, and, and then the game hit, started hitting a point where we were really ready to aim for launch. And we thought, um, sort of try to get the game out before summer because it's you know it's supposed to be a bad time of year to release a game in june july so we thought we'll try and hit um hit late may we managed to do it um so yeah that's that's the, the long and convoluted story of the beta really so yeah this is a question maybe more for uh for julian and dan but it's it's something i've been curious about the game's getting a really warm response and understandably i mean it's a game that i like i know i liked it a year ago I guess, you know, one one question I have for you guys is do you think this sort of like lengthy beta process with, you know, press, you know, getting invites at various points in it and sort of uh, you know, getting on board with this project, do you think it sort of predisposes the press to have a really positive reaction where 
you know, the people pitching review assignment, you know, the chance to review these games want to review Frozen Synapse because they already know what they're getting into. Do you think this, do you think this beta process uh, inflates scores at all? Um, I don't know, because I think uh, you run the risk of somebody reviewing the game based on their experience in the beta where it's, where it's not fully polished. Um, somebody saying, like, like you said, you know, I, I played it a ton in the, in the beta. Um, you know, so all, all I have to do is play just a couple of a new, of new pieces in the, in the launch product, and I've, I've got, I know all I need to know. Well, you know, the balance, in, particularly in a game like this, could shift uh, pretty dramatically. So you could get the impression that it's unbalanced, and then come in and, and in the, in the, in the final, and see that it's, it's, and not really see that it's, it's fully balanced now. Um, so that that could work against you. I think it, it, these kinds of long betas and and early press looks, I think, um, I think that they can have a positive impact on scores, meaning they can make scores higher. But I also think that they make games better, right? So, Very so true. You, you know, it, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing. Like a game that's a you know a mediocre game, particularly if we're talking about a niche. You know, I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but you know, a sort of an eighty level strategy game. Whether or not you got to see that early or not, if it's still an 80-level strategy game, I think niche reviewers are pretty much still going to savage it for being an average game. Um, however, being able to bring in the the sort of niche audience early enough into the process so that you can identify things that were wonky, that you may have had blinders on, because, you know, if you're building a game, you get used to certain things, right? And so, you know, I mean, your, your comments about the, the interface design and selection, right? Those are spot on. Those are my recollections of well, what we, we, we had that exact conversation. We did. I mean, that was, I mean, and I don't know whether you listened to us, but I'm sure you heard it from everybody else, right? So yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, and I, I do actually remember you guys talking about it, but yes, it was, it was something, it was a common theme. And, but the thing, one of the things at that point though, was that people were just saying stuff that I knew already. <laughs> I don't mean to sound funny, <laughs> you know, but I don't, there were things, there were definitely things I didn't know about, of course, that came up during it. But um, and certainly before we released the beta as well, we kind of we're aware of the shortcomings of the game, and it's. It, but you know, to have it fed back to you, it really puts it again back to the forefront of your mind. Like, go, we have to fix this. Um, there are a lot of things that you actually have to kind of decide not to fix, or that aren't really necessarily as big problems as people think they are. Um, but to have something completely, you know, people endlessly telling you that it's hard to do X, Y, Z, that is useful. And I think I think there's something about strategy games that is that lends itself particularly well to those kinds of those kinds of early looks. I mean, strategy games for a couple of reasons. One is they're very rarely games you play through once and you're done. Right? I mean, I, yeah. I may, maybe people have played things like Dawn of War that way. Um, you know, where the focus is so heavily on the, the campaign and the, and the multiplayer was so vastly different than the single player. Um, but but for the most part, strategy games have some amount of legs and replayability, not necessarily the case if you're talking about something like Duke Nukem Forever or something like that, where you're fundamentally talking about a single player story experience. Very few people are going to go back through it. Um, the early look there, I think, Rob, to your point, I think that could actually spoil that. Um, because now people will be like, "Well, I've already, you know, I've already played this game once. What am I going to do now?" And there's that, you know, the chances that the reviewer is going to notice all the things that have changed or better is, I think, pretty minimal in a strategy game. Um, I feel like it's a natural evolution. I think it's, I think it probably works. No, it's a, it's an interesting set of trade offs that I that I admit I hadn't fully considered when I asked the question. That's why I asked it. 
But, uh, it, you know, because it seemed to me that, well, I mean, I had a pretty po- I had positive expectations for this game. And they've clearly been met and exceeded a bit. But I, I've been interested. I'm interested in how this how this process works and how it sort of changes expectations and the ways that it could possibly work against you hadn't occurred to me at all. That you know you can to a degree like spoil the novelty of a game and by the time it reaches review, someone's going to be like, "Well, what else you got?" And yeah, and, I mean, and yeah, I, I think sorry. certainly if you had a, a free beta, like if you if you had had like a long, extensive free open beta for this with everybody playing multiplayer, I can certainly imagine that by the time you launch the game your hardest core audience is kind of done with it. That's definitely got to be a rub. Hey, um, w- so was there a big difference in your ongoing sales once you formally launched the game as opposed to what you were sort of selling throughout the beta process? Uh, I characterize that difference as night and day. Um, <laughs> uh, launching the game um, makes a massive difference. That So many people don't want to buy a game that's described as a beta. And the visibility that you get from launching a game um, is still vastly in excess of anything you can get as a small developer doing a pre-order. Um, so, so sales post-launch and you know residual sales post-launch just far, far, far in advance of the pre-order. So I know we're running a little short on time, but I did want to discuss the single-player campaign uh, for a couple reasons. One is it's... Simple Presence kind of surprised me because Frozen Synapse seemed like such a perfect, you know, quick hit multiplayer experience. I didn't necessarily, this was not a game I expected a single player campaign from. But I was also surprised at sort of the interesting fiction and writing and world building that went into it. Uh, So I'm curious both in whether it's worth the, you know, whether whether it's worth the effort you, you lavished on it. And also I'm just curious to hear you talk a bit more about this world and what went into it. Um, right, so I think uh, we always intended, like I said before, to do single player, and our, probably our biggest influence in terms of like entire games that we make are, are the sort of mid to late 90s PC games, um, where you had a big multiplayer and you had a big single player, these kind of slightly bloated and like fairly over-ambitious and mad PC projects. That's We think that kind of thing just works so well on PC, and that's that's our, our heritage, really, so we, uh, we wanted to do that. Um, with the single player campaign, uh, it was really kind of um, the story. I really like um, the idea of a sort of incredibly epic story that is going on behind the scenes of quite a sort of tight, limited bit of gameplay. Um, one of my favorite games of all time is Wing Commander. And if you think about what the actual combat in Wing Commander is, it's this fairly simple kind of arcadey, shooty thing. Which was kind of sold on its graphics at the time, um, but then behind that you've got this really daft um, space opera plot with all of these things going on. And you know, when you get back from a mission, you're you get berated for losing the guy on the side and that kind of thing. So I, I love that kind of sense of atmosphere. Um, and I had the the world in my head sort of as soon as um, we started talking about what kind of game we wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to do a, a sort of cyberpunky futuristic thing but i wanted to do it in a way that's different from the way that every single modder and and person who wants to do a cyberpunk game does one uh which was just to kind of create a bit of an unusual original fiction um and the sense of the different factions i wanted to kind of subvert all of the kinds of things that game stories normally do so for example the player's faction is pretty overtly disgustingly evil and it's not something i've really 
had people talk to me about that much. And I found that quite intriguing to sort of watch the responses. But a lot of the things that you're asked to do uh, are quite terrible things and not necessarily like, morally like justified. Like the second by mission, I think, or the yeah. third mission, you have to go just start blowing away lab assistants. Exactly. You do. That's the second thing you do. And then later on, um, you're fighting in a church and you're, you're helping people murder people, civilians in a church. And, and, you know, some people on your side kind of make a bit of a fuss about it. And then it's completely forgotten about. Um, and I, that really intrigued me, like the idea of mission objectives just being the whims of these characters who are sort of employing you and you not being able to do anything about that. So I wanted to sort of explore that and then you've got the uh enyo nomad the sort of quote bad guy faction um i wanted to do something where the bad guys have sort of got into power by making people like them and by doing things that are sort of ostensibly popular and good and then to just sort of characterize the player as fighting against them just because somebody feels like that should be fought against um and, and they're just portrayed by your side as being completely evil and manipulative and but you never really get to delve into that. So, um, so for me, it was the chance to write something like that and to just put all of these ideas out there and see how players responded to them was just absolutely fascinating. It's, it's been something I've always wanted to do. So getting the chance to write a big, wacky, silly story um, like that was, uh, was brilliant. Well, and, and I love the fiction that, I mean, the, the origins of this world are sort of like, it is a world that's basically been drowned in information. You know, it is, it is yeah. a world that has been drowned in the net and the sort of boundary between, you know, cyberspace and real space has really become very porous. It's, it's a it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating world. I'm curious whether you're going to be doing more with this fiction you've created outside the bounds of Frozen Synapse. Um, I don't know about outside the bounds of it. I mean, we're certainly thinking about whether, you know, we could do some more single player content, perhaps. Um, if we do some kind of expansion or DLC, that's sort of something that we're actually definitely talking about. I definitely want to revisit it um, and sort of expand on a few things. There are quite a few things that, that got left out of the story. Um, for example, I didn't focus very much on, on your units, on, on, the, on the troops you're commanding, and, and they kind of have their own story that, that I didn't really get to tell in, in, in the time that I had. I mean, I think I already tried to cram far too many ideas into the story as it was, so I didn't have time to explore that one. So I'd like to do something along those lines. Um, yeah, there's definitely scope for, for expansion in my head. And I also think some of the ideas that I had originally didn't come across quite as clearly as I wanted to. Um, so maybe something that, that allows you to, to get some more clarity on some specifics of the world would be, uh, would be good. But, um, and yeah, if someone wants to license <laughs> Frozen Science IP and pay me to write a novel, that'd be great as well. <laughs> the, the story, I mean, I have to say I didn't finish the single player campaign because I every time I fire it up, I've now got 14 games queued up that I'm supposed to go play multiplayer. Um, and, and but I mean, I, I think I probably played halfway through, I'm guessing. Um, and it, it is this sort of strange, amoral tale that you get mm. caught up in. It's interesting to hear you say that you haven't really gotten much feedback against it because I have to tell you, like that second mission and then later on there are a couple other ones, I was kind of repulsed. Yeah. Oh, man, we, uh, well, we don't want to talk uh, about how good. much I enjoyed the second mission when things didn't shoot <laughs> back and I could just like command my units in peace. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I don't think, I mean, there's there's been sort of high-profile stuff like, um, you know, no Russian, etc. And, and I sort of felt that was a little bit kind of unsubtle i mean i'm not saying our second mission is subtle by any means but it's sort of i wanted it to be more insidious like i just wanted the player to kind of get 
pulled along and I'm, I'm glad you felt repulsed. That, that's what I want when someone plays one of my games. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, but, I actually mean, I projectile kept, I vomiting playing, onto your computer. Me, me really, cool. And, and the, there's also this whole agency thing going on where, you know, you're not actually part of these missions. You're kind of dropped in to solve the problem, which, I mean, I understand it's a convenient conceit for the game because you didn't build <laughs> yeah. all the other stuff, right? But you're also explicitly called tactics. You are yes, a tool to solve a, a thing. problem. Yeah. It's really yeah. an interesting sort of agency story you're telling there. Well, the the kind of, like you say, the the idea behind that, I mean, functionally, uh, you're completely right. It's because of the gameplay. And, and again, it was the Wing Commander thing. Like, Wing Commander makes you feel like a space pilot. And I wanted to make this make you feel like a kind of decision-making engine <laughs> that's that's uh, that's doing things. And that's that's the role you're playing. Um, and also, I didn't want to write dialogue trees because I hate dialogue <laughs> trees and I will skip them. And they're really, really, really annoying to write. Um, so I, I take my hat off to anyone who is good at writing dialogue trees. There's very few people in the world who are. Um, so, so that was that. So I had this idea of that, you know, characters kind of talk at you and they sort of, it seems like you're talking back to them. And I, I don't want to spoil the story for people, but um, there's, there's a reason for that. Um, so, so yeah, I thought it was an unusual role for, for a player to have. Um, and it might be quite sort of interesting to push that as far as I could. Well, well, bravo for putting putting anything in here, much less an interesting story, because as Rob <laughs> said, I think uh, it took a lot of people by surprise that it was even there. I've had some really funny reviews which say things like, it's great that there's such a, a big story, but it's a shame it's so derivative and terrible, and they just move on to something else. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh, it's cool that it's there, but it is shit. Well, um, this, is, and, this, is, this is a yeah. frustration I've run into when I'm reviewing games at times. I, I've definitely uh, gotten into it with a couple editors where I, where I think the game is brilliant, but there's one aspect I really don't care for. And the response is, well, but they put it in, so we have to judge it and yeah. we have to dock it because it doesn't work. And I don't know. It's, it's very much a it, – it seems like – it depends on the outlet. But, I mean, certainly you don't always get the latitude you might like to weigh different aspects of a game the way you feel is appropriate. Right, exactly, and and from from my point of view, like I absolutely don't care if, if if a reviewer doesn't like the story, that's that's fine. Just as, but I would like to know why, like beyond just sort of throwing it down and saying this is a dire thing that must die. Uh, it's not particularly helpful in me trying to grow as a as a writer. For for me, the only problem with the story was was kind of the the way it's it's presented in the UI, where it requires you to click through so many times. Yeah. Um, because that, that, that got a little bit tedious. I'm like, okay, I'm, I kind of want to play the game now. Um, yeah. But so, you know, it's, it's not that I didn't enjoy the story. It's that it was between me and the game. Yeah, right. It's probably a little bit too wordy. I mean, it's the first time, the first time I've done it. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. There's some points where it's too wordy. I really tried to make it so that you can just hammer that skip button and you get through it and it's fine. You, don't wanna, <laughs> you know. Um, being devolved, like divorced from the story, also if you don't really care about the characters and the story, and you're playing the game, that actually works with the story, and it, and it, you can play the game like that, and that can be sort of within the realms of what I what I wanted. So that's okay. So I don't mind people skipping dialogue if they don't like it. Um, and and yeah, it would be nice. And a, a lot of people have said, you know, you should have had voice acting, but that is just a sort of nightmarish world of baroque, terrible things. No, uh, so I didn't want to do that, and th that means you end up having a lot of clickable dialogues, sadly. 
All right, that does it for this week's show. My thanks to our guests for joining us and to Michael Hermes for his production work and to Roberto Luongo for sending the Stanley Cup back to Boston. <laughs> uh, listeners should also know that I recently appeared on the Polycast, a podcast dedicated to the Civilization series. It was a fun appearance, and I look forward to being back. It's definitely worth listening to if you are a diehard Civilization fan. You can find the episode at thepolycast.net slash polycast. Uh, so, gentlemen, any last thoughts about Frozen Synapse? Anything you want to bring up? Uh, just that, uh, A, I'm, I'm sorry we didn't get to, uh, to talk about the music, which is excellent. Um, and also, uh, you know, you, you guys need to send me some, ter- some challenges. <laughs> well, we'll get right on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, we really kind of skipped right over the art, all of the art and sound design on this, both of which I think are brilliant. I mean, the art design, uh, you know, is shared something in common with some of the work that comes out of places like Introversion, but it's definitely its own thing. Um, and the sound design just blends right into that. I mean, it's really, it's really excellent. So, you know, I, again, I think you're right. I think we just we skipped it because we had so many other interesting things we wanted to talk about. Paul, any last words? Um, well, just to say thank you very much, guys, for um, you know devoting the whole show to this and for for covering it early on. It's it's really, really, really fantastic for us to just hear people being enthusiastic about the game and the kind of response and coverage we're getting uh, is great and it's it's lovely to come on and be told that stuff you've done is good so um so thank you very very much welcome all right fantastic it was fantastic having you on the show and uh, i hope we talk to you again soon uh so that'll do it for this week and until next week good night